Welcome to the podcast of New Covenant Church in Albuquerque, where we focus on the Bible, faith, and life issues. We hope this podcast will be helpful to you on your faith journey. Now, here's our message. Well, this morning we have a, a guest speaker that's a very special friend and brother of the church. He, he's been deeply, deeply involved in ministry, both uh, as a pastor and as a director of a very important faith-based ministry that uh, has, uh, shall we say, tentacles all over the world, including some uh, ties with us here at New Covenant that go back uh, over a decade. So would you please help me give a warm New Mexico welcome from New Covenant to Matt Ellison of 1615 Ministries. God, and it is always an honor to bring God's word to God's children, so I'm blessed by this opportunity this morning. About 25 years ago, the janitor at Calvary Chapel, that little church right down on Osuna, handed me a cassette tape. I was the youth pastor at the time. I'd been on staff a couple of years, and the janitor was always listening to Bible teachings as he cleaned the church on his Sony Walkman. Now, I've dated myself for some of you, some of you don't even know what a Walkman is or a cassette is, but it was a little device and it had, I think, magnetic media. It was a tape for you young ones. I guess it's the ancient equivalent of a, what, a CD? Is that right? I don't know. We don't, even those are ancient now. I mean, everything's digital. But anyway, so um, he would listen to cassette teachings, Bible teachings on his Walkman, and whenever he came across a really good one, he would hand it off to me. In this particular cassette, he said, you have to listen to the message on side A. And it was a really good message, but the message on side B was an unexpected gift of God's providence in my life. He didn't even intend for me to listen to that message, but it's the one that spoke to me. It spoke to my soul, and through that message, God imparted to me insights that have stayed with me ever since I listened to that tape. Insights about persevering in life and in ministry, especially when I just wanted to run and hide. I've held on to these Bible truths for 25 years, and I'm going to share some of these insights today. I hope they're going to be a blessing to you. But before we get into the teaching, would you pause with me one more time for prayer? Father, we come before you in the name of your son. And we heed the words of the psalmist. We still ourselves before you. You tell us to be still, to cease striving, and to know that you are God. You will be exalted among the nations. You will be exalted in all the earth. We thank you, God, that your plans cannot fail. That one day Jesus will be known and worshipped world over. And that passage in Psalm 46 telling us to be still, the context is a time of turbulence. Be still though the earth shake 
Though the mountains be cast in the heart of the sea, though the oceans roar, be still. And God, that's the world we live in. Seems the world is flying apart, but we still ourselves before you. We trust in your sovereignty. Help us to persevere in a world full of difficulty. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Difficulty, suffering, affliction, disappointment, these are things that all of us face. Christian and non-Christian alike are born for trouble. Job 5.7 puts it like this, but man is born to trouble as the sparks fly upward. Now, you probably have not memorized that verse. Maybe you have. But it's true. Man is born to trouble as the sparks fly upward. Man is destined for trouble just as surely as sparks fly up off of a fire. No one is exempt from suffering. No one is exempt from disappointment. No one is exempt from trouble, whether it's the loss of health. Some of you identify with that. Loss of loved ones. Some of you identify with that. All of you do. Loss of job. Fill in the blank. Life is full of loss. If man is born to trouble, how is it possible to persevere in life and in ministry day after day, week after week, month after month, year after year, when there are so many disappointments and frustrations in our own lives that we feel like we don't have resources left for anybody else? The question we must answer, my friends, if we're going to keep on keeping on in life and in ministry is this question. How do we minister out of our brokenness? That's the question we must answer because as I look around, if people are honest, I think brokenness is where most people live. No one has or ministers out of complete wholeness, my friends, because Complete wholeness is simply not part of the deal in a fallen world, is it? I mean, do you know anyone who's completely whole? I don't. And the reason I think this message is so important for us today is because a false idea has grown up out of the unbelievable prosperity we have experienced in America. And this idea is unfortunately very prevalent in the church. And here's the idea. I will not have trouble. I will not have disappointment. I will not have frustration. And if I do, well, there's probably someone or something to blame it on. Now, I have an outlook on life and ministry today that I didn't have 30 years ago as a wide-eyed young pastor. And it is that life and ministry will not be pain-free. They will not be easy. They will not be free of danger or disappointment. Folks, the ride will not be smooth because that is simply not part of the deal 
in a fallen world. And that's why crying is normal. It's normal. Groaning. Do you ever groan? My wife will hear me in the kitchen sometimes. She goes, you okay? And I said, I'm just groaning. <laughs> oh, groaning is normal. Conflict is normal. Persecution is normal. Consider the words of Paul the Apostle in 2 Corinthians 6.10. I love this passage. Speaking of God's children, those in ministry, and if you're God's child, you're all in ministry. He says, as sorrowful yet always rejoicing. This is strange that he puts these two emotions side by side in the same thought, full of sorrow and yet full of rejoicing. This verse says that it is possible to be someone who weeps with those who weep and yet possess an unshakable joy in Christ. And this is a great paradox, and it seems impossible. Sorrow and joy side by side, but by the power of the Holy Spirit, it is possible. And I know this because of firsthand experience. I can at one moment be filled with such profound, toe-tapping joy in Jesus that I feel like I'm going to burst. And just a little while after that, I can be filled with sorrow. I read a headline. I watch the news. I hear from someone that I know who's in pain or, or facing hardship. And I can be filled with great sorrow because of all the brokenness that I see that's all around me and also the brokenness that's inside of me. So I can relate to this idea of being sorrowful, yet always rejoicing. So how do we do it, folks? How do we minister out of our brokenness when we live in a broken world full of broken people and we feel like we don't have resources left for anybody else? I'm going to walk you through some things that I believe will be beneficial to you in this season, but just in life in general. The first thing we have to do is reduce our expectations of people and possibilities. Now, this sounds incredibly cynical. I have to fight cynicism. I'm sure you do too, but this is not cynical. This is just realistic. Reduce your expectations of people and possibilities. In 2 Timothy 4, 9 and 10, in Paul's second epistle to Timothy, he writes to Timothy and says, do your best to come to me soon. Verse 9. Verse 10. For Demas, in love with this present world, has deserted me and gone to Thessalonica. Paul had poured himself into Demas, discipled him. He had invested his life into Demas, and he writes to Timothy, and he says, I need you right now. Demas not only deserted me, he's turned his back on Jesus. He's gone to Thessalonica. What Paul learned to expect from people was not unrealistic. 
when Paul was knocked on his rear end on the Damascus Road when he had an encounter with the glory of Christ, he saw himself set against the perfections and the excellencies of Jesus. And this experience not only put him in touch with his own frailty, but also with the frailty and the brokenness of others. You might say that this experience on the Damascus Road reduced Paul to his proper size. It gave him needed perspective about man's condition. You see, we are wired to look to people to meet the ache of our hearts. That's how we're wired. To fulfill the desperate longings within us. Only one problem, people are finite. The only one that can fill the God-shaped vacuum that Solomon called eternity in our hearts is the infinite one. There's a space in the heart of every person. Solomon calls it eternity in our hearts. The only one that can fill that space is the uncreated, infinite, eternal one. No other thing. No person, nothing. I know many Christians who are living lives of constant frustration and disappointment because they're expecting from people what only God can give to them. Listen to this quote from Fenelon, the 17th century saint. It should be remembered that even the best of people leave much to be desired, and we must not expect too much. Do not allow yourself to turn away from people because of their imperfections. I have found that God leaves even in the most spiritual people certain weaknesses that seem to be entirely out of place. Don't turn away from people because of their imperfections. Spurgeon said it like this, the best of men are men at best. Let me make this practical. Don't erect false criteria for joy and satisfaction in your life. Whether that is friend joy, spouse joy, children joy, church joy, job joy. Don't erect conditions for joy that are simply unrealistic in a fallen world. If you expect too much from people, including yourself, you will live a life of constant disappointment. Jeremiah 17, verse 5 and 6, God speaking through the prophet says, Cursed is the man who trusts in man and makes flesh his strength, whose heart turns away from the Lord. He is like a shrub in the desert and shall not see any good come. He shall dwell in the parched places of the wilderness in an uninhabited salt land. Cursed is the man who trusts in man, who depends on flesh for strength. What I love about this passage in Jeremiah Of course, it's God speaking, so it's true. But it's very realistic about life in a fallen world. No, it doesn't, notice it doesn't say that the man who trusts in God has no trouble. He's free of issues. 
He's got a great, perfect life. Not at all. Right? It's tough. We're like a a bush in the wasteland if we don't trust in God. If you want to persevere in life, don't expect too much from people. Trust in God. Well, we can't also put our trust in possibilities either. I'm a, I'm a visionary, and I happen to love the word impossible. When we work with churches, helping them to think about how God might use their resources and their people to take the gospel to the ends of the earth, I encourage them to dream God dreams. What's your God dream for your church when it comes to getting the gospel out? I ask that question. I believe we should expect God to do great things. We should attempt great things for God, as William Carey said. I believe with all my heart that as God's children, we were created for something magnificent. However, if our emotional and spiritual fulfillment hinge solely on the realization of possibilities, we're going to be frustrated quite a bit. Because possibilities, folks, are just that. They are possibilities. Again, thinking of Paul the Apostle. In a couple of his epistles, we read about longings and desires that he had that were either delayed in their fulfillment or they were never fulfilled at all. Let me say again, I believe we should long to see God move. We should attempt great things for him, expecting great things from him. But here's the point. If our joy rests solely in the fulfillment of possibilities, we are going to be discouraged regularly. So if people and possibilities cannot meet the ache of our hearts, they cannot feel the desperate longing within us, what are we to do? Where are we to turn? Well, second point here is raise your God dependence. Don't expect too much from people. Reduce your expectation of people and possibilities, but raise your God dependence. And this is a lifelong process because, as I've already said, it is our tendency to look to pastors and politicians and policemen and friends and employers and spouses and children to fulfill us and satisfy us. And when they don't, because they can't, we become blaming and self-pitying. We get angry and frustrated, and we feel victimized. We feel ripped off. We're wired to put people on pedestals. And when we realize that they are broken just like us, we get bummed out. As I mentioned, I was on staff at Calvary. I went on staff there in 1994. I was pretty naive. (laughs) Wide-eyed, big-hearted. I thought I was going to be entering into job utopia. I really did. I'm not, I'm not making that up. I was like, finally, I'm going to have the perfect job. It didn't take long for me to realize about my fellow staff members at that church what I already knew about myself. They were broken people. People with issues. They were people in process. 
They were people with problems. Many people I know, and I can think of their faces in my mind right now, have walked away from the church because they did not cultivate a God dependence. They were like that bush in the wasteland. They were trusting in man for strength. And they walked away from the church and from their faith. Here's what happened. They got too close to their heroes, and to their surprise, they saw cracks. And it was devastating for them. Do you want to learn how to minister out of brokenness and pain? Again, if you, if you happen to be the one person in the universe that is not broken, come talk to me after the service. I want to, I want to know what your secret is. But if you want to learn how to minister out of brokenness and pain, because I think that's where we live most of the time. Yes, there's ups and downs, but I think we live there most of the time. If you want to learn how to do that, then stop looking to people because the very best will let us down. I'm so glad Jeremiah 17, 5 and 6 doesn't stop at verse 6. We're going to read 7 and 8 now. Blessed is the man who trusts in the Lord, whose trust is the Lord. He doesn't just trust in God. The Lord is his trust, his treasure, the object of his faith. He is like a tree planted by the water that sends out its roots by the stream and does not fear when heat comes, for its leaves remain green and is not anxious in the year of drought, for it does not cease to bear fruit. Once again, I love the transparency of this passage from 5 all the way to verse 8. There's a contrast now with someone who's trusting in God, whose trust is God. Again, not just trusting in God, but whose trust is God. And you notice the conditions are the same. Heat, drought. Realistic about life in a fallen world. But this man has planted his roots next to the stream. His roots are tapped into the very source of his life. And so there can be heat, there can be drought, which life is full of those things. Those are metaphors for the troubles of life. We all know heat. We all know drought. But if our roots are tapped into Christ, we will bear fruit even in times of hardship. Now, developing a God dependence is especially important for those of us who serve in ministry, whether vocationally or voluntarily. By the way, I believe we're all ministers. I believe in the priesthood of all believers. That's a New Testament concept. So if you're a believer, you are a minister. Do you know that? There should be no separation of secular and sacred. You're you're in ministry if you follow Jesus. But what, what I have in mind here is people get plugged into ministry, whether in a volunteer capacity or church or on staff or at an organization, and they get involved in ministry primarily because of people, not God. Whether it's some unmet desire they're trying to fulfill internally or maybe they want approval or whatever, but they're not in it for the right reasons, and so they serve but fruit doesn't appear right away, or it's hard, or they don't get stroked under the chin. They don't get the approval they were hoping for. Things don't go as planned, and so 
they lose heart and they throw in the towel. In Luke 14, Jesus gives some words here that are just right at the heart of hard ministry, hard great commission ministry. There was a banquet. He was invited to a banquet, invited to a banquet by a rich man's disciples with him, and he says to the, the owner of the house, the preparer of the banquet, he said also to the man who had invited him, when you give a dinner or a banquet, do not invite your friends or your brothers or your relatives or rich neighbors, lest they also invite you in return and you be repaid. But when you give a feast, invite the poor, the crippled, the lame, the blind, and you will be blessed because they cannot repay you, for you will be repaid at the resurrection of the just. To do ministry, to do hard, great commission ministry, you really have to be a believer in the resurrection. You have to have faith in the future. Faith in the grace that's coming to you. Faith that God will bestow blessings upon you in heaven. You have to have a God dependence. And according to this passage, folks, Jesus is writing it all down. What you did in faith for Christ will be rewarded in heaven even if no immediate fruit comes from those efforts here and now. He says you will be repaid. And perhaps some of you can relate. You minister. You serve. But nothing happens. In fact, those you're serving don't get better. There's no life change. There's no thank you, perhaps. There's no replenishment of resources. And you wonder, how do I keep on giving and giving? You look to Christ. You develop a God dependence. You plant your roots into the very source of your life, into Christ. You make Him your trust, and you serve, and nothing happens, and you say, it's okay, God, I'm doing it for you, and I'm looking to the day when you will reward me, even though nothing happened here, because I did it for you. I will be rewarded at the resurrection of the just. That's what it says. Don't invite those who can repay you. Invite those who can't. And sometimes that's what happens. We do ministry and we don't get repaid. But you persevere by looking to God. Third point here, if we want to keep on keeping on, is we need to rouse our spirit by looking to radical givers. And here's what I have in mind here. Be inspired by those who keep on giving and giving and giving out of brokenness and pain. And this is one of the reasons I believe we should connect ourselves to frontline missionaries, those who serve in difficult and hard places. We should support them with prayers and finances because what will happen is we will get their newsletters and stories and they'll send reports from the field and oftentimes those reports from the field give us proper perspective. One of the great benefits of supporting people in tough ministry is it, it minimizes our pity parties. <laughs> we read about others enduring in such amazing hardship and we think, gosh, 
If God's grace is enough for them, it must be enough for me. If it's enough for them, it must be enough for me. Here's another reason, um, or another way, I should say, to uh, be inspired by those who keep on giving out of difficulty is missionary biographies. I'm telling you, you want to see your faith stirred up and learn about perseverance, how to keep on keeping on in a broken world, read missionary biographies. Adoniram Judson, William Carey, Amy Carmichael, some of the greats in missions history. Adoniram Judson has a saying, the future is as bright as the promises of God. And that's, man, how can you not just grab onto that and be like, yes, the future is as bright as the promises of God. To understand the power of Judson's words, you need to understand where he was when he said it. He was a pioneer missionary to Myanmar, formerly Burma. There was no believers there at the time. He had his heart set on India. God sent him to Burma instead. And after over a decade of very difficult ministry, he lost family members to disease on the field. He had translated the New Testament, and all of his New Testament work had been confiscated by the government. He was in prison being taunted, and his captors basically said, what do you think of your future in Burma now, Judson? And he said, my future is as bright as the promises of God. How could he do that? Because he had a God dependence. He knew that there would be people from Burma in heaven because he read Revelation 5 and 7. He knew that his work was not going to be in vain. Tens and thousands of believers today trace their spiritual heritage back to Judson. And we know that heaven will be populated with people groups from Burma. That's what he was holding on to. He had a God dependence. He looked to the future. Read missionary biographies, people. God gives grace. We can keep on keeping on in the midst of trouble and affliction. It can be done. And if it can't be done, let's just all move to Hawaii. Start a commune. Of course, you know, the truth is it'll be filled with trouble because it'll be, we'll be there. Folks, it can be done. Read missionary biographies. Connect to missionaries today. One, join yourself with the work of God around the world, but this will give you perspective. It'll increase your own faith. Number four, ruminate before you eat grass that won't satisfy. And uh, in case you need a definition, it's okay. I look up a lot of words myself. Ruminate, think deeply, contemplate, consider. You know, we get this word from the cow, the, the rumen and the cow, where, where they, they chew their cud and it just kind of simmers there in the rumen, right? That's the idea here. Chew on, consider, contemplate before you move to the greener grass. Stop. Think deeply. The greener grass may be greener, but it has no nutritional value. If you have truly tasted the sweetness of fellowship with Jesus, 
of participating in his purposes. And you move into an easier situation, the grass may be greener, but it will not satisfy you. You will die inside. In my own life, I have never known deep nourishment from God to come out of times of ease and comfort. I've enjoyed those times. I've had fellowship with God in those times. But the deepest nourishment that I have received from God always comes through difficulty and trial. My deepest communion with Jesus has come through my deepest struggles. I don't pray for more struggles. I don't like them. I know you don't either, but I'm telling you, that's how God draws us near. It's how He weans us off of this world and teaches us to live on Him alone. I'd been in ministry for about five or six years. As I already mentioned, I was encountering the brokenness of my fellow staff members. I was dealing with sin issues in my own heart and brokenness inside of me. And I was uh, ready to run and hide. It was a difficult time for me. And my wife and I needed a little vacation and we got away with family. We went to New Orleans. Her family's from Louisiana. And we went to a museum. I remember going through the museum and I was just, I love museums. My wife pretty much hates them, but she does it for me. And we went through the museum and I was disconnected, which is unusual. I'm the guy that has to read every panel in the museum. Like they've moved on 10 displays ahead or, you know, exhibits, and I'm still on this one. And, but I was disconnected at this museum. And my wife knew some of the stuff I'd been going through. And I remember going to the courtyard at this museum, and we just sat down, and we were talking, and I was pretty quiet. And I just started to cry. And she knew what was going on. And she said these words to me. Where else are you going to go? Where else can we go? She was quoting Peter from John 6. Where else are we going to go, man? Context. John 6. John 5, John 6. Jesus is performing signs and wonders, healing the sick. He is proving through these signs and wonders that he is the great I am. John 6, he multiplies fish and loaves and feeds the multitudes. And massive crowds are following Jesus. Many would-be disciples are following him. And he begins to teach. And drawing from the miracle of the bread, the multiplication of the loaves, he says, I am the bread of life. My flesh is real food. My blood is real drink. He who abides in me will drink my blood and eat my flesh. He's talking about his death. He's pointing, of course, to the ordinance of communion that we would use to remember his death. And the would-be disciples, the large crowds, many of them have had it. This is not what we signed up for. 
I thought you were going to make us prosperous and healthy and wealthy, and you were going to make Israel great again. You were going to overthrow the tyranny of Rome. Now you're talking like this. We're done. This is not what I thought it was. Verse 66 of chapter 6. After this teaching about blood and flesh, many disciples turned back and no longer walked with him. So Jesus said to the twelve, do you want to go away as well? Simon Peter answered him, Lord, to whom shall we go? You have the words of eternal life, and we have believed and have come to know that you are the Holy One of God. Where else can we go? Where are you going to go? Yes, the teachings are hard. Yes, it's difficult. There's still heat. There's still drought. But where are you going to go? If you're thinking about moving away from your calling as a child of God and as a minister of God into an easier situation, know this, the greener grass will not satisfy you spiritually. There's a parallel passage in Psalm 73, Psalm of Asaph. I'll familiarize you with it. I can't read the whole thing, but I recommend that you read it and even commit some of this one to memory. He is seeing the prosperity of the wicked. They're fat. They're sleek. They're blessed. And he starts to wonder, am I wasting my time following God? Because my life stinks. There's still trouble in my life. There's still brokenness and difficulty. But the wicked, my goodness... He's thinking these things, and then he comes to his senses. He goes into the house of God. Verse 13, he says, All in vain I have kept my heart clean and washed my hands in innocence. For all the day long I have been stricken and rebuked every morning. He's just thinking this, mind you. And then verse 15, If I had said, I will speak thus, I would have betrayed the generation of your children. Good thing I didn't say that, God, to your children. But when I thought how to understand this, it seemed a wearisome task until I went into the sanctuary of God. Then I discerned their end. He came to his senses. He ruminated about the greener grass. He thought about it, and he said, nope. I saw God in the sanctuary. And I saw the end of the wicked. You read on, it talks about what awaits the wicked. If you're thinking about moving away from Jesus, because since you've been a Christian, the troubles just keep coming and coming, know this, the wicked don't have it better. Consider their end. Eternal separation from God. So if you're feeling like stepping away, pause and think, contemplate. The grass may be greener but it will not satisfy you. Number five, reduce your speed to finish the race. Taking breaks is important if you're going to find the pace to finish the race. I love the examples in Mark and in Luke of Jesus pulling away. Luke 5, 16, he would often withdraw to desolate places and pray. Mark, very early in the morning while it was still dark, Jesus got up, left the house, and went off to a solitary place. 
Mark 6, 31, speaking to his disciples after some very strenuous ministry, says, come away with me. Don't you love that? The Savior saying to his disciples, come away with me. And much of what we call vacation is not resting. I mean, come on. When I talk to people all the time, and they're like, I need a vacation from my vacation, right? I'm so dead. What I mean is put on the brakes and stop. I'm pretty frenetic. It's something I have to rein in sometimes. But I am learning by God's grace the importance of silence, taking breaks, getting perspective. That Psalm 46, be still and know, cease striving. The, the word stillness there means relax your hands or slacken the grip, let go. Cease striving and know that He is God. He will be exalted in all the earth. We need to do this. Father Amonis, third century church leader, said, I have shown you the power of silence, how thoroughly it heals and how fully pleasing it is to God. It is by silence that the saints grew. It was because of silence that the power of God dwelt in them, because of silence that they knew the mysteries of God. We had a, a two-year period here where we were forced into our homes. It was very difficult. Some of us got busier. Let me encourage you, if you want to find the pace to finish the race, learn to get still before God. To be quiet. To be with Him for no other reason than to be with Him. Number six, almost done here, restore confidence with prophetic words of encouragement. So help each other, if you want to keep on keeping on, with prophetic words of encouragement that arrive at the appointed hour. Proverbs 25, verse 11, a word fitly spoken is like apples of gold in pictures of silver. One version says, Settings of silver, apples of gold, get the picture, in a setting of silver. Speak prophetic words of encouragement to one another. That's how we keep on keeping on. How I've been encouraged by the many notes and emails and text messages and phone calls from friends and family members and my team over the years. I was having another I want to run and hide moment. You're going to think I have these all the time. They happen. Was it Calvary dealing with life, my own trouble? Staff trouble, ministry trouble. I was really close to running and hiding. <laughs> and I made my way to the mailbox at the church downstairs. My office was upstairs. And I opened my mailbox and take out the mail, and there was a handwritten note from a mother of a teen student. I was youth pastor at the time still. And she just said, I want you to know that your service 
to the youth of this church, and my daughter has not gone unnoticed. Now, she had no idea, I don't think, that I was ready to quit. But God put it on her heart, and that note arrived at the appointed time. It gave me enough, mm, enough, it, it was grace enough for the day to get me through another day. I pray that New Covenant would be a church filled with encouragement scouts. You get the idea? That you're scouting this body, looking for those who need encouragement, and you're praying. You'd be on the lookout for people who need that note, need that email, need that text. You would be encouragement scouts. If we want to keep on keeping on, we need to restore each other's confidence with words of encouragement. I'm telling you right now, there are people on the edge in this room. How do I know that? Because we live in a broken world. And if just look at the size of the room and the size of your church, that's what's happening. Might God use you to lift them up, to provide a note I'm praying, whatever it is, that would give them enough grace to continue to take those steps forward. Finally, and I hadn't intended on putting this in the message, but I woke up yesterday morning and I thought it was a great way to just to close this message up. Remember, it's more blessed to give than it is to receive. I talked about being encouraged by those who give radically out of difficulty, but this kind of summarizes the whole message in a sense. Remember, it's more blessed to give than it is to receive. Acts 20, 35, Dr. Luke says this, remember the words of the Lord Jesus. He said, it is more blessed to give than it is to receive. This is interesting. He says, remember, in other words, call to attention, remember why you give. Don't just give aimlessly. Remember why you're doing it. He says, these are the words of Jesus. And Jesus here, folks, is appealing to our innate desire for joy. Do you know we're created for joy? But we seek it in all the wrong places. We look for it in all the wrong places. And this message talked about some of that. We look to people. We look to things. We look to jobs, whatever. But Jesus says here, Remember, it's better or more blessed to give than it is to receive. He says, don't suppress your desire for joy. Pursue it, but pursue it by giving. A friend of mine, Lee Travis, I worked for him when I was in Seattle, Washington years ago, and he had two stickies on his mirror, and he said he looked at him every morning, and one was a frowny face, and it said me, and one was a smiley face, and it said others. He said, when I walk out of the house, I just want to remember it's better to give, that I should do nothing out of selfish ambition or vain conceit, but in humility consider others more important than me. I should look out for the interests of others. It is better, Jesus says, to give than it is to receive. I believe that some of the best joy available to us this side of heaven comes when we sacrifice for the sake of the king. Amen? Amen? The joy we need to minister out of our brokenness will not come from self-focus 
or accumulation, but by a God focus and by a sacrificial lifestyle that seeks to make others glad in the gospel. Missionary to India, Paul Brandt, I love these words. He says, some people voluntarily take on suffering as an act of service, and these two find that pain can serve a higher end. I have met a few loving saints in my time, men and women who at great personal sacrifices have devoted themselves to the care of others. As I have watched these rare individuals in action, any thought of personal sacrifice fades away. Listen to this. I find myself envying, not pitying them. In the process of giving away life, they find a level of contentment and peace that are foreign to most people. Those are profound words. He says, in my observation of those who give, I see them. I see the pain they're in. I see the sacrifices they've made. But I don't pity them. I envy them. I want what they have. They have a level of contentment and peace that is foreign to most people. It is more blessed to give than it is to receive. David Livingston, pioneer missionary to Africa. At the end of his missionary service, he was, his life was coming to an end. He died on the field, also lost family members on the field like Judson did. He was home to Scotland. It was his last visit, and he was recounting the stories of God's grace and what was happening in Africa, and it was full of danger and difficulty and sacrifice and joy and all those things. But some of his contemporaries were commenting on the depth of his sacrifices, and he stopped them and said this, I never made a sacrifice because he had tapped in to the source of his life. He knew it was better to give than it was to receive. Would you pray with me? Father, thank you for your goodness. Pray for this flock. God, encourage them. It's been a difficult couple of years for so many of your people. And the bumps just keep coming. But God, you give grace upon grace. Shower your grace upon this body of believers. And I pray that as they tap into you, that they would keep on keeping on, that they would bear fruit in the midst of heat and drought. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. This concludes today's message. We thank you so much for listening. We'd love for you to connect with us. You can do that at our website, nccabq.org. From there, you can submit any questions, feedback, and your prayer requests. nccabq.org is also where you can learn more about New Covenant Church. Subscribe to our podcast and newsletters, browse our online message archive, and even tune in and watch the stream of each weekly message. We hope you'll join us. So, until next time, may the Lord bless you and keep you. May God smile on you and gift you. May God look you full in the face and make you prosper. 
Have a great week.